Hi everyone and welcome to the Comrade Podcast. Our guest today is Eromo Ekbejuli. He's an accomplished journalist from Nigeria. He has written for various news outlets from local to international, including The Guardian, The Atlantic, Africa Report, Al Jazeera. He's able to cross the barriers of languages and culture to report on places and issues that most reporters are not willing to tackle or report on in a nuanced way. Please enjoy. Yeah. Hi, Welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Yusuf, and today uh, we have Eromo. How do you? Egbert Julie. Egbert Julie with us, uh, and of course, in this field. I was reading your uh, your biography, and bio is pretty, that was great, you know. One thing I found amazing is your your background, engineering in agriculture, right? Agricultural engineering. Yes. And how did you, you know, move from that to journalism? Uh, <laughs> okay, so sometime in, I mean, I'd always been someone who was very interested in the arts, right? So mm-hmm. growing up, I was ambidextrous and also um, my brain was wired such that um, you know I was part arts part science mm-hmm. you know and then it so happened that my parents were also one of them was um, a teacher in the arts another in the sciences so you know I'd always grown up being quite um, what's what you know in the dying you know being able to to float back across from from this mm-hmm. sphere to this sphere and um, so when I got into uni, there was this one time when there was a riot in school, I covered it. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I graduated, while I was waiting for my, for all those post-graduation formalities, I just started writing in journalism, moved to Lagos, and yeah, that's it. Yeah. So <laughs> that's it. I never was... use my certificate anymore. So it wasn't like a, 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 a big step, it's just because you were into it. Since. Well, I had already been into it, so I felt like at some point, I mean, I knew that I was definitely going to be a writer, but mm. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a side thing or if it was going to be a main thing, but then, um, you know, exigencies at the time, and, um, yeah, I, you know, I think it was just fate, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, even though I'm a big believer in preparations and all that, I also see, realize that there is um, one, this luck, and there's also the hand of God, so... Mm-hmm. I think everything was just it was you know it was like a formula that was pre cooked or something and I arrived at where I am. I see that you you wrote for you know like the garden and you know major newspaper sites. How is it? How hard or easy it is to as an African to be able to get those platforms? Um, it, it is tough because um, journalism is full of middle aged white men. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I mean, most people are interested in whether intentionally or otherwise mm-hmm. sticking to a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I say whether good or bad because there are people who think mm-hmm. oh, Africa is all about rising, it's all about positives, you mm-hmm. know, and then the people who think it's all about negatives, mm-hmm. you know, and there are also people who are doing writing this, yeah, you know, because they genuinely think that this is what it is, yeah. and then there are people who are also writing the biases. So there's all of this preset, you know, in whatever ratios and proportions. Mm-hmm. But um, many of us, you know, based on the continent, writing about the continent for our own local markets, mm-hmm. see the way these things are 
and we don't have um, the ambition in the whole drive to change that. You know, we're just content with oh, let's just write for people back home. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are the people we're writing about, anyways. Yeah. But um, you know, I think early on, I realized that I wanted to do more than just write for a small number of people. Mm-hmm. I realized that you know, to get a true picture of things to a larger audience, you have to target a larger audience. Um, yeah, so that was it. Yeah, we were really impressed yesterday, kind of doing some research on your background to see that you published in, um, like you mentioned, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Washington Post, um, Africa Reports, uh, the BBC, um, and that you cover actually quite a the wide BBC? range of. I think oh, there I don't was remember. A, oh, okay. I mean, I might have. I think there was something. But I, I mean, part of what was really impressive about um, is that you really cover a lot of different types of topics and regions, right? So we saw that you were covering, for example, the you know crisis in Anglophone um, Cameroon. Um, you know, you you were in Liberia during the Ebola crisis. Um, obviously, you cover uh, you know politics in Nigeria. Um, but also, you know, pop culture every once in a while. So you, you have this sort of wide repertoire of topics that you engage in. And so given all that, um, I guess I wanted to ask you if you could sort of think back, what has been your most, two, two things. So one, your most challenging assignment or story that you've written and sort of tell us a little bit why, and then maybe uh, your most rewarding and, and sort of maybe insightful, something that maybe a, a, something that you worked on that was like, you went in with a particular idea, but then it was surprising. Something else kind of came out of it, which you know maybe that happens often. Uh, okay, first let's set the base, right? Mm-hmm. So I started out as a culture journalism. Mm-hmm. I still have dreams of one day being a pop culture journalism professor. Okay. <laughs> uh, but then I started doing conflict, and everyone saw that oh, he can do conflict, and then you know, mm-hmm. people started um, editors started sending me on those. Um, in See. terms of most challenging, I, I mean. I think it, it will be around um, the time when I was covering um, insurgents, the insurgents, Boko Haram in, mm-hmm. in the Northeast, because um, I'm a Southerner. Mm-hmm. I can't speak Hausa. I mean, I said then, I, could, mm-hmm. I, I knew not, not a single word in Hausa, um, even though my mom speaks it. But mm-hmm. I couldn't speak anything. You know, So you're going to a new land where, first, I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. I'm a Southerner, I can't speak the language. And, you know, there's, there's just only foreign reporters there. This was around 2015, right? Where, you you know, most of the people reporting then, Boko Haram, like, peaked around 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. So it was still dangerous. And most of the people reporting there were foreigners. You know, and I was going there without health insurance to report. Mm-hmm. And I remember initially at first, because I was a freelancer, mm-hmm. and because I was, like, you know, this... this different criteria I've mentioned, just different um, parameters. No one wanted to commission me right ahead. So I had to mm. like dive straight in, take my savings. And um, for the first week, I think I was sleeping on the floor, my fixer's floor, right, before, mm. because I had booked hotel, but I got there and seen that they had been given to someone else. Wow. So for the first week, I was like, so yeah, that was pretty challenging because eventually I did sit in and write um, some stories for the new humanitarian, the Guardian. Like, you know, stories that... Um, when I was going there, I knew I was going to do them when I was going there, but I never knew that, they were, you know, it's like dreams, like, you know, they might come to fruition, they might not. Um, so reporting all of that with very tiny budgets, no mm-hmm. health insurance. Um, yeah, 
don't know, I think about it. I think that was pretty challenging. Yeah, uh, and then navigating through the waters, you know, you have to pay fixers, but you know, you can't pay them the way that others pay them. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then getting permission to report, getting permission from the Nigerian army to go to certain places is, is really terrible because um, the Nigerian army, for all the good work they do, they also have a lot of lapses. Mm. And it's almost like they're afraid that at every point you move, you're going to discover them. You know, <laughs> forgetting that you might also discover the good work they've done. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it was it was a challenging period, you know. So I, I'm going to group all of the stories that I did between 2015, 2017. Yeah. Um, reporting on that return and for months living there has been the most challenging, I think. Kind yeah. of to follow up on that. What I mean, I know this is probably a difficult question to answer, but what are what are some things that you want listeners to know about Boko Haram um, that you know, or sort of misconceptions that you want to you know try mm. to challenge um, given uh, your extensive it's, coverage? Of- it's it's and and this is the same with so many other things on the continent, right? Mm. The issue of Boko Haram is multifaceted, right? Even mm. though it all boils down to one thing again poverty, ungoverned spaces, and marginalization of people, but it's so multifaceted. And mm-hmm. um, many people think it started in 2009 yeah. when the founder died, but it's not, you know, it got started way before, mm-hmm. way longer, and, you know, several things plugged in. Like Sambisa Forex, for example, where <clears throat> Rebel Quran was used as their headquarters for, for, for a long period of time, right? Sambisa Forest is, you know, so many years ago, so one of the Nigerian heads of state, I can't remember who, wanted to use it as a training camp. Mm. Yeah, right? so, now, Sambisa is huge. It used to be forest reserve. Yes. Many people don't know this. Uh, and there's also another thing. People tell you, oh, I can't go to Nigeria because it's Boko Haram. I'm mm. like, um, <laughs> even Abuja that's in the north is, mm. is, Abuja is by road at least 12 or 14 hours mm. from, wow. from, from the northeast. You know, it was pretty far. Yes, so yeah. it's it's not like oh, once you step in Abuja, oh, you still have to duck, you know, for bombs. It's just like someone saying, "I don't want to go to New York because of Harlem or because of uh, the Bronx." Yeah, 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 and even and even this, you know, Harlem is still even within within New York, mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah. still, still the different spaces. Yeah. But Nigeria is so big; it's the thirty six states. Mm-hmm. Um, people in Lagos, like if you take a flight from Lagos. Across the coast is a 40, mm-hmm. 40 45 minute flight to Accra. Yeah. So you can get to Accra faster than you can get from Lagos to Abuja. Mm-hmm. You know? And then again, Abuja is not close to the northeast. So people, you know, um, yes, yeah, they're part of Nigeria that are unsafe, but you have to understand the distance and realize. Mm-hmm. It's just like Burkina Faso, for example, it's not mm-hmm. everywhere that, you know, radical um, insurgencies are happening. There's, there's places people go to Wakadogo yeah. in, in Syria. Mm-hmm. They, they, I'm pretty sure that there are people in Syria with port. With them, um, what do you call it now, Ferraris? I'm mm. pretty sure it's not like the whole country. Yes, there are places, but you know, it's not like the whole country is enveloped mm. in, in in crisis. Boko Haram, Boko Haram, but what's the problem with it? Like, what do they what What do they want? What I mean, what's the claim? Why are they um, doing all? Boko, Boko Haram wants to set up a caliphate, you know, like government. You know, they want they believe that the elected authority is not Islamic. Right, and that so um, methods of you know people should not do their civic duty to the government, but they should do it towards to them. Yeah. Okay, but don't they have that in places like Jigawa? They have like the Shar the Sharia over there. Um. Okay. So, um. In 
I think it was in 2001, the Sharia Code mm-hmm. of Conduct was introduced. It was very controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, there were um, ripple effects in 2001 with... Sorry, I'm debating a bit. Mm-hmm. In 2001 with the Miss World incident where Nigeria was also hosted and... Mm-hmm. Long story, but you know there were many ripple effects as a result of that in 2000. Now, mm-hmm. um, the North, as we know it, is Nigeria has 36 states. The North is 19 states, mm-hmm. and then the core Northern states are about nine or so. But the North is split into three parts. There's um, the North Central, Abuja falls under that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the Northeast, which is where Northeast where um, is happening, mm-hmm. and then there is the Northwest, right? So, um, in these 19 states, mm-hmm. Sharia was supposed to have been implemented, but I think only about four or five, I'm not sure, only about four or five fully implemented it. Jigao was probably one, but mm-hmm. Zamfara, mm-hmm. which is a, mm-hmm. at the very top of the northwest to the borders with Niger, mm-hmm. um, implemented it. Now, Sharia is slightly different from what Boko Haram, I don't I wouldn't say slightly, it's different from what Boko Haram is trying to enforce. Mm-hmm. Now, Boko Haram believes. And to an extent, this is true, mm-hmm. that the politicians implementing Sharia have made it um, for just to benefit the rich, you know, and so it's only the poor that are victims of Sharia, and also that they have been corrupt, which is very true. Mm-hmm. The man himself who implemented Sharia, which was supposed to deal with adultery, um, child marriage, and a few other things, he mm-hmm. married a, an Egyptian teenager a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? He was never dealt with. He, he went to the Senate. He has huge farms in Zamfara State that mm. are run by uh, Indians or the Chinese, you know, like, you know, the Commonwealth mm. for himself, right? So Boko Haram feels that everyone, both, you know, secular governments and both Muslim, le- Muslim leaders mm-hmm. implementing Sharia, that all of them have fallen short of, you know, um, what Mohammed asked. You know. so, so Boko Haram is like, oh, we need. To implement something much stronger than Sharia, you know, that includes not allowing Western education, mm-hmm. not allowing the burn down. The first things they used to burn down were were um, police stations, classrooms, you know, tools that connected the people with with the West in their eyes. Mm-hmm. You know? So, um, so it's it's slightly different from Sharia, slightly different from Sharia. Interesting, like so. Actually, yeah. I, I'm going to take slightly back. It's mm-hmm. different from Sharia. They, they're trying to implement something that is way stronger than stricter. And not Sharia is primarily focused on Muslims. Yeah. Is, they want to stretch yeah. that cross board, whether you're Muslim, whether you're anyone. So, what they're trying to do is almost like uh, they like when poor people are trying to take over, or when you know. People are looking at the government that is corrupt and they're trying to change things. It's not just religion. Ideally, ideally at the, that's that's yeah, that's it's at the base of the ideology. But the thing is, even Muhammad Yusuf, the father mm-hmm. of Boko Haram, mm-hmm. he was in you know in league with with um, the governor at the time of Borno State, which mm-hmm. is Borno is the best place of Boko Haram. Yeah, he was in league with the governor at the time, right? And so you know, um, at some point. I think the governor was paying them for, under some arrangement. Oh. I can't I can't remember the exact details. But yeah. yeah, at some point they were very, very close to the governor. Very, very close. And what happened was when there was now some fracas and the leader was arrested and then mm-hmm. killed in a tragedy shop. Mm-hmm. That's when the people rebelled against Spot, the government. Yeah. So they had been having their own 
um, parallel government, but yeah. still in tenterhooks with the main government in state of time. So even Boko Haram, they are, they are going against the... Uh, initially, yeah. they were going against the tenets which they were preaching mm-hmm. that will resist Western government. Oh. They, they had the implied or um, implicit support of the government at the time. So it's, it's, it's all very confusing because mm-hmm. the things you preach, you go against them. Um, even even I interviewed former wives of Boko Haram commanders and... <clears throat> And they live flamboyant lives in Sambisa, buying jewelry, you know, wow. some, of the, some of the very same things they preach against. So it's, <laughs> it's, 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 and this is why it's all very multi layered. You can't just see yeah. black and white and say, well, these people, you know. It's, it reminds me a bit about uh, the guy from Uganda, Kony. The guy. Um, the LR. Yeah. yeah. You know, he rep, I mean, from. You know what I've been saying is he started. I went to the conference actually on the genocide thing that I recorded with uh, Claude. Mm-hmm. Initially, he was rebelling against the way they were treating them, as far as their tribe or what, like the the zone that they live in. Like they were mistreating them, and at some point he started rebelling against that, and he started overdoing it. Now it's just like if you're being oppressed and you try to, you know, you start. Honestly, to honestly, um, I think power is such that people people try to fight against the effects of power, the oppression, mm-hmm. you know, and then eventually they transition into the yeah. oppressor. Look yeah. at Robert Mugabe, for example, yeah. who was a brilliant man who fought against um, um, yeah. Swapo, was Swapo Namibia or was it was it Zimbabwe? But anyways, you know, the whole Southern um, African mm-hmm. movement for independence and mm-hmm. fighting against um, colonial interests, you know, he got into power and then, you know, you can see what he became, yeah. right? So this everybody really, uh, you know, at the base level inst- base level instinct, everyone wants power. Yeah. But then this is what they do with the power. Yeah. But I also wonder the degree to which, like, if we look at sort of similar insurgencies, let's say, or you know, um, in, in like French speaking West Africa, there is also the, the kind of resentment towards, you know, the, the legacy of French imperialism, French militarism. Right. And so I, I wonder too about like, what, what is, you know, under Obama, AFRICOM and, and the U.S.'s military presence expanded throughout the continent and, and we, we, you know, you and I were talking, we were talking earlier about Djibouti and how it's sort of divided up between all these foreign powers in terms of their own military bases, etc. So to what degree do you think has kind of foreign militarism on the African continent also fed into, um, you know, the, the, the growth or the, the expansion that, you know, of, of groups like Boko Haram? I don't know if there is a connection, but, you know. Um, seen... I mean, I feel like, um, I mean, so if you look back to the time in Guinea, for example, mm-hmm. where um, this guy who was fighting against Charles de Gaulle and French interests, and then who later imposed his own his own um, dictatorship on them, right? So you have foreign governments trying to fight back, mm-hmm. you know, like oh, you know, and then appearing, you know, the people looking at the slightest ray of hope as you know, this foreign government might be my my be our saviors. And then you also 
realize that um, this and this is deeply underplayed, right? There, there's, there's just as local armies also commit extrajudicial killings and mm-hmm. um, these crimes. Foreign armies also do that, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think I saw some reports somewhere about um, a camp in Niger. You know, where I, I can't mm-hmm. remember so much. Um, but you know, so all of these are underplayed, and people see this, you know, and sometimes the, the foreign armies are encamped with. With, uh, sure. with with the governments of that country, you know, and these people will see it. And um, the thing about repression is that people will fight against it, you know, mm-hmm. whether for good or bad, whether for their own personal. You know, people will fight against it, and it will spring, spring all sorts of um, uh, all sorts of all sorts of things rise in the face. You know, there's never a vacuum in, in crime, in um, in crime and in power. There's never a vacuum. Look at the situation with Libya, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. We took Gaddafi out. And so all of the people, Gaddafi had his jackboot down. As mm-hmm. terrible a leader as it was, I'm not making yeah. excuses. But he had his jackboot down, and as soon as he took him out of the picture, right, all of these mm-hmm. people started swarming like bees. Yeah. You know, so so these things happen uh, because, like I said, there's there's not going to be a vacuum in power. Mm-hmm. When one leaves, when for example, when the foreign power leaves, another person is going to like, mm-hmm. arrive. Or when um, you know, there's, there's just all these going to be all sorts of entities. Look at the situation between. Um, uh, Rwanda and, and Uganda now mm-hmm. all trying to control the communal interests mm-hmm. of the Congo. Mm-hmm. You know, there's at some point now I won't be shocked if some some um, guerrilla organization is rising up. Mm-hmm. You know, these these things are always going to happen as long as as long as greed remains and mm-hmm. and and greed is in, in tremendous supply where there is mineral mineral interest in Djibouti, for example. It, it may not have mineral interest, but it has. It's a strategic location, right, between um, the streets of uh, Mel. I've forgotten the name. Mm-hmm. It was a strategic location, right, on the Red Sea, mm-hmm. in the Gulf of Aden. You know, between the Middle East, between Africa. You know, and that's why China, Turkey, um, the U.S. Everyone is trying to go in there. You know, China, mm-hmm. I think the U.S. a few years ago paid double um, the lease agreement that that they were paying before, so mm-hmm. that they could try and. And pay a price that is close, close, or or just as equal as what China is paying. You know, so there's yeah, and it's a very small. Country. So you think China is currently paying? So I think he came and I, paid I think more than the US did. At some point, China was paying way more, mm. but um, the US had to now double their lease um, and to either match it or to surpass it. It's something, mm-hmm. something very similar in that range. Um, and you see, all of these small countries, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has a base there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Turkey, I think Turkey is trying to build one there. The Italian yeah. and the French never left. You know, so um, so long as there is mineral interest, so there's money. You know, there's people. Uh, I'm pretty sure the French have some interest in the crisis in Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if you look at it, the Anglophone region is where all the oil interests are, mm-hmm. and the French interest in that oil dates back to is it seventy two? Mm-hmm. So before seventy two, when when Cameroon became a unitary state. You know, it's this. You know, at every every you have to realize that at every point in time there is interest, um, mineral, or money, or power, or in Guinea's mining. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's something at play there, and that foreign governments or foreign armies are trying to get, and that um, when it suits them best, the local governments will also try and topple their foreign interests. Mm-hmm. You know, and in all of this, you the people, the locals are trapped in between. You know, yeah. it's just like two elephants are fighting, and then the, the grass in between is trapped. <laughs> At some point, the grass will sprout. Yeah. It's, it's it's you know something maybe it might be the blood dripping. Something is going to make grass sprout. Yeah. It's not going to stay the same forever. And when that happens, you have chaos that extends for miles. 
Uh, yeah. Actually, on that, could you talk a little bit more about the crisis in Cameroon and sort of similarly tell us, like, what are some things, what are some misconceptions about it? It hasn't been covered very well, certainly in yeah. the English-speaking media. Uh, um, um, even though it's an Anglophone Cameroon. Yeah. 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 yeah but, so, but the thing is, Cameroon is... Um, it has 10 regions, mm-hmm. and um, most of these regions, I think six, oh my goodness, I'm beginning to forget. I think four regions are Anglophone, and six, I don't, no, 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 sorry, yes. Two regions are Anglophone, mm-hmm. and the rest are, are Francophone. Mm-hmm. So overwhelmingly majority Francophone. Mm-hmm. And Cameroon is a country that has two, its national anthem has two different standards. One is in French, one is in English. Most of the English speakers don't know the French. Mm. Most of the French speakers don't know the English. That's that's a country. Mm. It's which is interesting. Now, um, I think part of the reason why Cameroon hasn't gotten that much listen um, is because Pobia has his lobbyists, and mm. Pobia barely lives in the country. He lives in Switzerland, um, and then. He's also old. He's been here since 82. So I, I think the media is like, yeah. oh, what's there to cover in Cameroon? Mm. <laughs> and then in addition to that, um, Cameroon also has the rebels coming in from Central African Republic, mm-hmm. right? And then um, in the Adamawa region and in the far north, which borders with Nigeria, Nigeria mm. you have Boko Haram, mm. right? So there's like a tripartite um, chaotic situation going on there. And... Um, um, the, 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 the English, another thing is that many of these refugees have also fled into Nigeria, mm. right? So, you know, the big brother Nigeria, you know, so because they're there, um, it's, there's, there's, there's no much, how would I put it now? Nigeria already sucks up the energy in the room. And then because of all these other small, small factors happening, mm-hmm. right? And okay, so where the refugees, if they were caught up or going into a smaller country that would cause chaos, like, oh, okay, that's fine. But they're swallowed by Nigeria, right? Which, in spite of his many problems, I'm still taking more people, mm. you know. So um, I think all of this have had an effect on, on how the news has been covered. And Kobia um, did something of a master stroke earlier this year, a few months ago, calling for a national dialogue. You know? And then immediately the UN Secretary General jumped in and said, oh, we endorse this. Mm-hmm. Um, not many people ask what are the modalities of this national mm-hmm. dialogue are, are people going to be participating you still have some people in prison for life mm-hmm. in Kondengi Central Prison in, in, in Yaoundé mm-hmm. there's so many people who have been in prison there for life like geniuses um, lecturers who are taking um, I think it was in January 2018 or so they were arrested from Abuja where they were having a meeting mm-hmm. um, because and I say they as um the leaders of the movement trying to succeed, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I think they call themselves the Amazonia Defense. They, well, the country they want to succeed and form is called Amazonia. Mm-hmm. Um, the people, you know, who are fighting in the regions are called the Amazonia Defense Forces, but I don't remember the name of the council that was meeting, you know. So, um, so yeah, you, you have the fact that Nigeria can swallow in a lot of these things, and then there's also other crises. Um, yeah, that's, 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 I think, you know, this is why. You know, Cameroon really doesn't, there's, there's, there's not much to write on mm. Cameroon. It's, it's not sexy, it's, yeah. you know, it's not sexy. Go, I, I want to go back to, uh, uh, Boko Haram in a little bit. What do you think could help with Boko Haram? Like, do you think negotiation could help? Or um, now they're branching out. 
and attacking you know the neighboring countries well i'm i mean i'm not a military strategist so i don't know for sure but um i don't think negotiation and payment for ransoms have helped at all because what has happened is that um and I think this started happening around uh, 2015 or 2016. Because the government was desperate to get a queen, mm. right? The cheaper girl. So you have to look Jonathan, who hadn't, who was so nonchalant, mm. and it took about two weeks to officially recognize that this girl from Antigua. And then you move on to Buhari, who's a general. And who had, um, in the 80s, he had a track record of chasing another group called the, the, the Matasin, uh-huh. right? It was similar radical, but way smaller. Yeah. And he chased, well, he, he, you know, he, he, he chased them. I think he chased them into Chad mm-hmm. or something. I can't remember, but he had this really remarkable military stint in uh-huh. the 80s, yeah. part of what made him a hero. Yeah. So, um, so he was expected to bring that to the table, and the government yeah. really wanted a quick win, you know, mm-hmm. because it's historic. You've taken an increment out of office, yeah. and one of his, um, you know, similar to what you might call his Chapaquidic, mm-hmm. you know, um, was, was this. This girl. So the government that replaced him, that's the Buhari government, went on ahead and arranged a couple of swap deals, which it mm-hmm. continues to deny. Mm-hmm. All right, arranged these deals, and what happened was that money exchanged hands, and so both Boko Haram and the faction of it that has not allied itself with Islamic West Africa province, yeah. with ISIS to become yeah. Islamic West Africa province, right? Now had money to buy sophisticated equipment. And so for a while, 2016, 2017, early 2018, they were just attacking military facilities. Yeah. So you strengthen them and you essentially deregulated the kidnap for ransom industry in that region. Yeah. Right? That was one thing. Um, and I mean, I mean, I think somehow the army can get around um, paying for ransom, even though they, they will likely be civilian casualties. So I think they're also considering that, you know, I can make excuses for them, but it's, it's a valid excuse if you don't yeah. want collateral damage. But then on the other hand, you also have to realize that the army has been overstretched, right? The Nigerian army used to be one of the biggest yeah. in Africa. I used to go on peacekeeping missions, um, Ecomog, Sierra Leone, Liberia. Mm-hmm. Even, I think in Gambia now, even the chief of army staff is still, is still Nigerian, yeah. or one of those countries. Uh, but, but that army has been overstretched, and there's no... Um, money for for Boko Haram and ISWAP have routed and taken many of take not many but taken some key um, armory mm-hmm. from from Nigerian army and then you also have um, you find the corruption mm-hmm. people are diverting money meant for that into other things right and third and most importantly um, I'm sorry I've lost my train of thought um, the morale is down. Morale is down in the yeah. army because of all of these factors that I've listed. Yeah. You know, um, ten and most importantly, yes, I remember it now. The good look, Jonathan administration had engaged mercenaries, especially oh. from South Africa. There's a guy called Ibn Barlow mm. who had fought um, in Angola mm-hmm. and all that. Thing. He had this shit like around. So after that, um, I think it happened in 2014 with um, the Chipper girls, right? Mm-hmm. Around this 2014, early 2015, the mm-hmm. army was making solid progress against Bokaram, knocking them back. And that's because we got mercenaries. I think yeah. there were also Ukrainian mercenaries. There's another mm-hmm. set of mercenaries. Yeah. But then Buhari came in and terminated it. Because, you know, we wanted an ego boost, or whatever his reason was. Yeah. We wanted an ego boost for the army, like, oh, our sure. army can do this yeah. itself. You know, but it didn't work. Even Barlow put out the post. You know, it didn't work. 
you know, I remember there was a diplomatic role even between Nigeria and South Africa because mm-hmm. Nigeria went, you know, secret operation, um, clandestine operation, mm-hmm. try and buy arms from South mm-hmm. Africa, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. there was the U.S. Diliahi law for human rights abuses. Nigeria mm-hmm. couldn't directly, oh, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so there were all of these things, and then Buhari came in and you know, with his grand ideas that mm-hmm. have not worked. And then they refuse to change the service chiefs. The service chiefs are past retirement age. Mm-hmm. They're past retirement age. Mm-hmm. You know, so but well, he knows what he's doing, but but yeah, still so, so so I think I think the first step will be probably to you know to change, you know, the military hierarchy, like we, oh. we just scramble people. Let some people with fresh ideas come in. Right, you need you need new ideas. I don't know what these ideas will be, but you need new ideas. and I think you also need fresh legs, like these mercenaries. Yeah, they were they were doing the Lord's work. You know what you're saying, especially the, the way they hit the armies, because that's exactly what they're doing in like the Francophone side. You know, now they saw because they started attacking. I mean, it's hard to get to the army, so they attacking convoys or police headquarters. Even that's, they went, that's, that's, that is the modus operandi. Yeah, even they went to the city and they shot at the army base, even though they couldn't enter, supposedly. This mm-hmm. Yeah, like in what they do in the city itself, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, listening to you, I realized why they're hitting those people. Because I thought they were just trying to scare people, but no, actually they're going after the armory. Yeah, they're you know? trying to get the armory yeah. and then they try to get people to kidnap. Because the government is forced, oh, want to say we rescued people. You know, it's, it's, it, it makes good headlines. Mm-hmm. Nigerian government rescued 200, you know. Yeah. So it, it makes good headlines. So so they now know, okay, this is soft targets. And so the, 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 the um, insurgents now go after this. Yeah. It's interesting. But if we, if we sort of go back to the original kind of, when we first started talking about Boko Haram and, and the way that these kinds of, movements, if you will, emerge and the structural reasons, right, that they emerge, what do you think needs to happen in Nigeria generally, right, um, beyond, you know, the the kind of area that, that um, these issues are confined to in order to eliminate some of the structural reasons people um, might join a group like Boko Haram? And, and, and maybe if you can link that to the, I don't know if there is, but if you can link that to the demands of the Occupy Nigeria movement in 2012 and sort of what, you know, mm. are there connections there? Like, well, I, I'm, I guess I'm just interested generally, like, what are some of the structural issues that, you know, the, the Buhari government should be uh, taking on in order to just change, you know, the, the material conditions of people in Nigeria in general, all over the place, including in the north? And- um. Okay, so, uh, okay, okay, I think, I, think, I think we can make some link there between structural reasons for the rise of Boko Haram and um, and kidnapping in the northwest, mm-hmm. right? Around the borders with Chad and Uche mm-hmm. to um, occupy Nigeria. I tweeted recently that it would be more, um, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle for the Nigerian government to remove subsidy, mm-hmm. for subsidy. Mm-hmm. And for subsidy was at the heart of occupying Nigeria, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Love Jonathan moved it on, I think, December 2011, just a few months after he'd been elected. And it was, he announced it January 1st, mm-hmm. I think, you know, mm-hmm. which is disastrous, yeah. right? Um, Nigeria 
oil amounts for till today, 70% of its earning mm. uh, forex. And um, most of the people feel like the only thing they're benefiting from is petrol. That's obviously buying for cheap. Mm. Because Nigerian crude oil is cheaper on average than what you get in West Africa. Um, so most of the people feel that's what they get for cheap. So Nigeria puts subsidy on oil, subsidy on electricity. That's which is also why electricity is, is, is terrible in, in the country because you're not paying the market rate. Mm. So first of all, um, the government is forcing um, discos. Discos are distribution companies to sell way cheaper. So they're not even making enough profit. Mm. Now, in terms of oil, the government is paying subsidy, paying billions of naira to the foil distributors so that they can sell lower the price. There's a huge corruption racket in there. Mm. And Lord Jonathan did not address how he was going to dislodge the racket mm. and the whatever uh, mafia, the time for it in Nigeria is cabal, you know, a group of influential people and making money for it from, from that. You know? And so if you flip that, take go to the north, people in the north feel like they, they, when you look at the indices, right? Most of the indices in Nigeria, you know, increased poverty and all. It's largely because of the north. Nigeria is is, is lopsided, right? So you have um, it's like think of it as Johnny Bravo in the American cartoon, mm-hmm. right? So you have a huge shoulder at the top. Mm-hmm. In, that's, in terms of numbers, you have a huge shoulder at the top, which is north, and then you know, the, the tiny slender leg at south. Mm-hmm. But then, in terms of economic prosperity and um, high English literacy levels, because you, have, you know. If it's and people in North are very literate in in Arabic and uh, yeah, but if you flip it right, mm-hmm. social prosperity, right, the big parts, your big body is is the South mm-hmm. and then legs at the North. Okay. Right? So sure. noting that, so whatever effects of corruption and poverty are much more felt easily in the North. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, so why you have Niger Delta militants trying to agitate and and advocacy groups trying to agitate. Um, for increased resource control. Um, so currently, there's something called 13% 13%, which is what the states get from, okay. from the oil. Right? Mm-hmm. So after yeah. the federal government has deducted all of that, mm-hmm. what you get for producing oil is just 13%. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. so, people are, yeah, yeah. so people are protesting that, right? In the north, mm-hmm. people are really just protesting for, you know, we're well, not protesting, but people are so poor that they live, you know, when you talk about oh, people live on less than a dollar a day, most of those numbers, yes, there are people in the South, most of those numbers are in the South. Mm-hmm. Because the South, like I said, that's 19 states. Uh, of Nigeria's 200 million, I think more than 100, um, I think up to 120, you know, it's up to 120 million live in the North. Mm-hmm. Um, so the poverty is felt more in the North, and which is why Boko Haram started as people. And, and of course, religious ferocity is, you know, Christian. So Nigeria, of course, there's most more Muslims in the north mm-hmm. and more Christians in the south. There's some Muslims in the south, in the southwest region, and there's some Muslims in the north, in the north central region, okay. central mm-hmm. country. So there's religious diversity on both sides. But um, I guess you could argue that it's slightly more in the north uh, because um, when you have lower levels of English education, right, it's much easier for there to be a Sumbi mentality. Okay. Right, and which is usually the spark for ethno religious crisis. And if you check out, there have been ethno religious crises in the south, but they are mm-hmm. way more in the north. Mm-hmm. It's all linked to education, inextricably linked to um, poverty levels as well. Okay. And so um, people are very poor 
right? And then you're cutting subsidy. Yeah. You know? You're taking subsidy sure. without accountability, you know? So where are these earnings? You're trying to do a palliative measure, you know, explain this properly to the people. All of that wasn't explained well. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's things like this that lead to formation of groups like Boko Haram. And um, in its early days, Boko Haram used to just be people come together to read um, the Quran and listen to the, the, the wobbled doctrines of, mm. of, of its founder. You know, it was departing from Quran. And in, increasingly, it started giving the people loans to buy mm. motorcycles, mm. loans to start their farms. You know, when, you know, so that's the thing that happened with the government space. Where you can provide someone with with a means of living, mm-hmm. right, and provide religious indoctrination, you are his god. Right. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. A way to put money in my pockets and a way to aspire to a higher life after I die. Yeah. What else do I need? Yeah, yeah. You know, so 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 that's why. So yeah, it's it's all down to grand mismanagement of the country's resources, mm-hmm. right, and then the effects that it has on both parts of the country. And one part. Um, and, and of course, people feel that many of the southern politicians are involved in, um, especially, I think it's probably because most of the petroleum distributors are from the south. People feel like corruption is way more in the south. Mm-hmm. In, but anyways, you know, the effects of corruption, and for everything that happens in the south also happens in the north. Mm-hmm. Right? Just probably on a the, on the grander scale in the north because of the impact of the numbers. And like I said, slightly higher religious well not slightly but the higher religious diversity mm-hmm. yeah so so that's why you have things like Boko Haram but then on the other side you also have um, I'm, I'm trying to link this back yeah. you also have um, the IPOB the indigenous people of Biafra mm-hmm. which is okay. people agitate, agitating for their own um, for their own state mm-hmm. about 50 something years after the civil war happened mm-hmm. and first succession of that region you know so um I think I'm going to end it all by saying that for as long as there's corruption mm-hmm. and there is um, false subsidy, I mean, the government is taxing all sorts of things, it's taxing people for making phone calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, the ta- tax man said, um, oh, Nigerians talk too much anyway. On the phone. <laughs> they're charging for that, they're charging people to shop online now, mm-hmm. you know, with all of this, instead of removing subsidy. You know, right. you could easily just remove subsidy and transfer that money to fund infrastructure. And, you mm-hmm. know, the government is really broke now. And that's why I made that thing about... Um, Say that thing about how it will be harder, easier for the camera to go through the eye of the needle than for the mm. government to remove subsidy. Mm. As long as there's still grand scams perpetrated, like subsidy and everything else, there's always going to be resentment among lower income people, even among some middle class earners, because mm. the middle class is vanishing. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, what that is going to lead to is that um, probably will lead to another huge protest like Occupy Nigeria. But what is more certain is that it's going to lead to more. On government spaces and people who will take advantage of them like Mohammed Yusuf did mm. and like Nandi Kanu did with, with IPO. Mm. You know, so 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 that's it. There's people are always going to fight. And that is at the crux of my book mm-hmm. about um how Nigeria has eventually become as has not is eventually the what how Nigeria is gradually evolving into the Federal Republic of Self Help. Mm. Every man for themselves. Mm-hmm. I wanted to add something on, on that, you know like even now in, in a place like Burkina, some of the people in, you know, like in the, the I think it's Iceworld, they're, they're from Burkina. Yes. You know, some of the rebels or, I mean, whatever we want to call them, they're Burkina Bay. Because it's, at some point, they kicked a lot of people from the army. So if all someone knows is to shoot a gun, 
and kick him out of his job. Very true. But what do you want the person Very to do true. apart from exercise? I'll give you job. another example, and away from the north, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm a south and I say, like mm-hmm. a bias. <laughs> away from north of Nigeria, let me give you an example from the south of Nigeria. Now, um, the southern militants, right, you know, they've been trying to, in the Niger Delta, trying to get more resource control. And in 2000, and um, when Yerada, President Yerada died in 2010. So in 2009, or 2008, amnesty was given to these people. Turn in your guns, it's a disarmament program, turn in mm-hmm. your guns, mm-hmm. get money, and you go. Now, these people were reintegrated into society gradually. And there's a place called Calabar. Mm-hmm. Like a huge tourist potentials. It's got rocks, it's got all sorts of things, forests, and bio, some of the um, it, huge biodiversity, some of the most uh, rare species you find in the world mm-hmm. in, in Cross River. And it hosts a carnival every year. But now it's, it has become like the cultism capital of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened. So these people, you know, you had finished, uh, you know, you took all of them into one small camp in that state. You mm-hmm. train them, and after the program, people were disappearing to society with nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And though, you know, not, whether you've taken their gun from them, they know how to shoot guns. Mm-hmm. So, what they do is, you know, across the waters, and that's the Gulf of Guinea, which is the world's most dangerous shipping route. So, people mm-hmm. ferry guns across. You know, what do they do now? Recruit young boys and, you know, steal, kidnap, you know. You know, some parts of the state are still safe guaranteed, you know, but, you know, at any point in time, anything can happen. In Calabar, the capital, which mm-hmm. is not good, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so so this is the same you are saying about people. Um, yeah. they, they all know how to shoot. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing to do. It's also the same thing with um, the civilian JTF Joint Task Force across across um, the Lake Chad region. Mm-hmm. Right. These people are helping to fight Boko Haram. They're helping the army. You know, local intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right. They know this place. Some of them grew up with Boko Haram members. Mm-hmm. Helping to fight the army. But what happens afterwards? I think mm-hmm. I read a piece on this in, in 2016. What happens mm-hmm. after all these people? You've been paid terrible sums of money, paid less than $100 a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what happens next? This person, this man, you know, is essentially he has gone as a freelancer for hire. Yeah. If he's not hired by ISWAP, he could be hired by the government or he could do it for himself, be his own boss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's all down to the simple economics. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I wanted to run. Now, uh, some names, you know, uh, politicians' names, not, not just politicians, but presidents. But before that, I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, you said you wanted you you write in the book about Nigerian mm-hmm. democracy. democracy. How 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 would you describe Nigeria, Nigerian democracy? Uh, well, Nigerian democracy is still very young, and um, for it to have survived, I mean, so there was what. Four years before same guy Buhari mm-hmm. did a coup in mm-hmm. eighty five New Year's Eve nineteen eighty five mm-hmm. nineteen eighty three sorry mm-hmm. make your pardon New Year's Eve nineteen eighty three Buhari showed at that but um, democracy returned in nineteen ninety nine and um, it is deeply flawed it is mm-hmm. deeply flawed um, just like for many you know, reasons just just everywhere everywhere yes, everywhere as America is getting to find out now mm-hmm. oh yeah thankfully it's having yeah. its own moment of awakening um, but um, the solution to, to a poor democracy is not dictatorship it's not a benevolent strong man it's nothing else but more democracy honestly because what happens is that um, as you have a poor democratic state like mm-hmm. Nigeria 20 years it seems happening now that we didn't know could happen 
and not benefit from a lot of those, you know, uh, from the, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, so it's yeah. also in some ways an exclusive democracy, if you will, and it has its own, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like, you know, even in time, because Sweden is there right now, mm-hmm. in time, some of all those countries get there, and it's just going to take African countries slightly longer mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. because one, we are more heterogeneous than sure. we are, mm-hmm. and so with heterogeneity comes... Um, a lot more issues, you know. The re- one of the reasons why Botswana mm-hmm. and to a far lesser degree Rwanda, I say to a far lesser degree because you know <laughs> it has falsified numbers. But one of the reasons why is because Botswana is not. I know people talk about um, is it Somalia or Sudan being homogeneous, but one of mm-hmm. the reasons why Botswana is doing well is because it's, it's not as heterogeneous as say mm-hmm. Nigeria or South Africa. Mm-hmm. With heterogeneity, you have to please so many people on the table. In Nigeria, we have a federal character commission, you know, and then there's talks of, well, you have to zone if you have a president from the South mm-hmm. and have one from the North. Um, has this state got some president? You have mm-hmm. to create more states, you know, so that this state, this ethnic group can be a majority, in this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, it will take more time for us to get there, right? But it's, it's a process, it's a rolling, you know, it's a rolling stone. Mm-hmm. Right, so mm-hmm. it's it's going to just keep rolling and rolling and rolling until it gets to, mm-hmm. to the destination. I believe Nigeria is doing pretty good in terms of democracy. And the reason why I say that is mm-hmm. because if a country could, you know, go after a president, a governor, or you know, state official who's not like in the government, who is in the government part, like you know, they could go after. Whether the state official is in the government party or not, they could go after the person. You know, even though, you know, people talk about... Uh, which hunted? Huh? Talk about them being which hunted? Like, no, no, no. Selective justice? No, no. Like, even though people talk about the corruption, the fact that they could go after, you know, people with enough with power, power to, to, mm-hmm. to fight, it's, to me, it's a sign that the country is doing great. You know, well, the judicial system is a little bit. Comes to comes You know, Nigeria is all right. You know, the judiciary, especially, is is, is being strengthened, right? Mm-hmm. In the face of many, I, in the face of many attacks, mm-hmm. the judiciary, especially, is being strengthened. Um, about corruption trials, I would say we're still we're still very backward. There's, there's too few trials happening, and it's mostly for those who fall out of table. Yeah. For now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, I mean, the president's chief of staff, and I, you know, I don't care about you, mm-hmm. is hands down one of the most corrupt people in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, the president, the secretary to the state, um, to the federal government, which is you know the U.S. equivalent, mm-hmm. would be the secretary of state, right? He was implicated in a grass, you know, some contract, right? Which mm-hmm. was diverting money that was meant for displaced people mm-hmm. to grass. You know, how are you spending millions of naira to clear the grass in a camp mm-hmm. when she's going to feed people? And it took months before it was removed from office. Now, he's been in a court case, and I think that court case has been dragging for about two years. Okay. I'm very sure, you know, many of these people will go scot-free. And some of these people, in the current cabinet, the people who have been con- indicted you know, by their state for stealing, former governors, mm. you know, at least three of them. The people, you know, so, you know, it's... So I have a long way to Justice go. is coming, but it's, it's proceeding too slow, and it's only it's only for those who are out of favor, as it is now, that's how I say it. But if, if you take that in the U.S. today, right, like, 
the same thing happens here. You know, if the but on a lesser degree. Yes. To a very lesser degree. But, and that's you know, again because, like I said, of institutions. And also because it's you know Nigeria, Nigerian uh, democracy started like a few few years ago. You it's know, all, compared all, to the US, we're, so we're to correct. me, this they're still in the good place. You, you, you know, are very correct. And I, when I hear people, you know, wanting to talk down African democracy, or you know, oh, you're, you're correct. I mean, the largest economy on the continent, so it's only the democracy is just twenty years old. Mm-hmm. I was I was old enough to know, yeah. and I'm, I'm not even thirty. I was old enough to know, you know, when democracy returned and mm-hmm. how. People celebrated in 1998 when Sunny Abacha died. Mm-hmm. You know, Sunny Abacha was was a heinous <laughs> man. Yeah. And um, before then, before then, Nigeria had really been through all sorts of um, dictatorships, whether from colonial administration and all this. You know, there's just really like three periods in Nigerian history that have mm-hmm. been that have been had a civilian. We had the parliamentary rule for six years after mm-hmm. independence. We had those four years that were truncated by Buhari, and now we have those twenty years. So we've, we've made decent progress, if, if, if I'm being fair. Yeah. Then. But I think that what we want to address, not necessarily... And, and I say what we, mm-hmm. as, we as Africans, mm-hmm. not necessarily peering eyes from the yeah. West. What we want is to push for more, right? To be critical rather than praise. I mean, let praise be reserved for the outsiders. Yeah. We who know where it pinches, yeah. we're the ones to demand more criticism, more clarity for our democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... but Overall, on the surface, yes, we've done well. Yeah. You, you also mentioned, uh, you know, like you were talking about countries who are doing okay, and you mentioned Botswana, and also you mentioned Rwanda. You think Rwanda is doing... To an extent, Rwanda is doing okay. Yeah. I mean, um, and I've said this based on things that I've seen. Mm. Ease of doing business, for example, in Nigeria, it took you months or a couple of weeks at most. In Rwanda, I think it has, and I like that there is female representation. But I like that there's female representation in Parliament. Mm. You know, Rwanda is probably one of the only places in the world, mm. not Africa, mm. one of the few places in the world where a single woman, probably a young teenager, can walk at any hour of the day, morning, afternoon, evening, or night. You're walking in Kigali, mm. you're safe mm. at any time of the day. But when you consider that, that anyone who tries to challenge Kagame is yeah. silent. You, know, you have yeah. Diane Riguara, yeah. who was in prison for so long. You have, um, I don't know her name, Mabineza. So there was one other one. Like, yeah, a couple there's of one, another one yeah. who was was in prison. You know, you have opposition to yeah. but now you have the ones in South Africa. Mm-hmm. There was a diplomatic probe between mm-hmm. South Africa and Rwanda recently. You have um, Kagame now rebelling against... Um, Against his former his former master, Museveni, yeah, um, yeah, right? All trying to control uh, Congo. Yeah. You have the war. I think how the French wrote an article or a book, an article about this years ago um, on the hidden war in the Congo, Kagame's mm-hmm. war in the Congo. I think that's what it was called. Yeah. You know, you have all of this. You have I have a friend who was personally you know, tortured in Rwanda because he tweeted. Yeah. I mean, well, how is a tweet going to harm you? Oh, how, yeah. you know, so. You have all of these things, and then the the the, the economic um, the figures for the mm-hmm. economy are boosted. You yeah. know, when I say boosted, I'm just being euphemistic. Yeah. You know, so 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 there's 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 a bit of growth. You know, just mm-hmm. you know where this country is coming from, genocide. But you mm-hmm. know, you can grow things. I, I'm pretty sure Kagame can muster growth. 
if he wanted to without having to, you know, all this yeah, outline yes, measures. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's a pretty smart guy yeah. and it's pretty effective. But, so, so, sorry, just yeah. very last thing. You know, I'm just worried that, you know, all of this growth that he has masterminded mm-hmm. when he leaves office and he will leave office. Mm-hmm. When he leaves office, you know, the wrongs, the many wrongs, the far more wrongs that he has also done, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about when he leaves office. I, I fear for Rwanda when mm-hmm. Kagame leaves office. Mm-hmm. It's a plastic solution. Mm-hmm. It's a plastic solution that he's implemented. Mm-hmm. I don't, when I look, you know, we, I think we all have to agree that yes, there is a, a progress, a little progress. But as she said, I don't know if we could stand on that progress. The reason why I say that is because, you know, since Kagame, I mean, with Kagame, like you've seen a lot of Chinese companies, like gravel, like they have land, they have uh, factories, which they employ people. And what people don't see with those kind of investments, it's not just wonder, you know, it's like, you know, throughout Africa. There's, you know, those companies, they come in mm. and they will set up in, let's say, a town and they will grab the town, the land around the, you know, the, the, the town or the, the country, yeah. right? And they will kick people out of those lands and they will give them jobs. Now, these people, they were, you know, let's say farmers and now they're kicked out and they don't farm no more. It means they're not, in the, you know, they're not independent no more. Now they give them jobs with enough money to survive. And you know, some people would say, "But so, would you prefer them not having that little money to survive?" No, I would prefer them having their own land and farming and eating enough mm. and not getting sick. It's because yes, yeah, so, thank you. Because now when you kick those people out and you give them jobs and they're working in the factories for. Eight, at least eight hours and you're giving them money Stipend. yeah so that's actually yeah that's the right word it's not even a salary it's stipends. now they take that money they don't even have time to farm so they have to buy food outside and the, the sad part is those companies provide the food too and they eat those food and they get sick because it's not what they used to, or it's not what they produce. It's full of pesticide and all. It's expensive. Yeah. Now yeah. they spend all their money on that, and they get sick, and they don't have money to take care of themselves because those diseases. We don't even know half of those is we didn't have those diseases. Now we can't treat them because the medicine we had wasn't for this. Now we have to go to the hospital, which we can't afford. So when people say Rwanda is no, it it, it yeah. has. I mean, and and also to, and, and that's why I situated everything in context. Mm-hmm. Most of these developments are happening in Kigali, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so <laughs> let's be clear, yeah. which is a very small town. I don't yeah. think it's the size of Manhattan. I, just about, anyways. Um, overall, overall, right? I don't have any issues for the Chinese to that area because overall mm-hmm. because someone has to do it right you yeah. have loose cash mm-hmm. uh, and um, you don't in, in intervene in your politics much like the US or Russia mm-hmm. or, or Turkey would mm-hmm. but when you now get down the devil is always in the details in terms mm-hmm. of reference you know and then you see how our governments and what's gauging our futures 
you know, to, just to, you know, to get Chinese loans. Yeah. And, um, and then things like this, you know, in, in Rwanda happen, you know, land grabbing, mm-hmm. um, displacement of people. And the mm-hmm. Chinese come with all of the people, right? They don't transfer the technical know-how, at, mm-hmm. least, at least as far as I've seen. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's the, the devil's in the terms of the reference. It, you know, I think Kenya and one other country are now renegotiating terms of loan and saying, we will not pay you this. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, China has loads of money, but where will it go if it doesn't come to the continent? Right? If you... Djibouti revoked one loan from um, from Dubai mm. to build a mall in its country. And that's because it has Chinese money. Mm. Right? So, Nigeria or another country... China, granted, China is the country Nigeria owes money the most to, but it's what, just about 10% of its debt. Mm. Nigeria can easily tomorrow say, no, we don't want China. Mm-hmm. You know, so once countries begin to negotiate, properly negotiate the terms of their reference, I think we will find out that they, the Chinese can only have the influence that we allow them to have. Mm. Kagame has the personality to do that. Mm. He has the personality to negotiate and say, no, 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 this is what we want. So why is that personality being, you know, channeled into, you know, making people miss yeah. instead of, you know, if, you're, if you really are for long-term, um, what you call it now, prosperity of your people, mm-hmm. you can negotiate those terms of record, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, we all know that some of them are smart enough to know what to negotiate and all that. It's just sad when you see them not negotiating in the favor of their people. The people, but that's because they all scare money. Yeah, I think uh, there's one deal I can't uh, in, in Nigeria where Nigeria took a loan. Um, it, I mean, it came in light of this recent. So, Nigeria is supposed to pay nine billion dollars to this Irish company that was set up for the purpose of this transaction and, of course, to defraud Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And so, in light of that, digging Premium Times, which is like the best Nigerian newspaper pulled up some other deals and one of them is one where Nigeria has been looking for a project mm-hmm. did not build the project mm-hmm. the money went into the hands of people and Nigeria mm-hmm. is now going to have to service the loan mm-hmm. you know, so some people really for the while they're in office let's pull this deal through let's get our kickbacks and let's leave office you know, right. and that is really what is happening on, on parts of the continent not just in Nigeria not yeah. just in Africa rather it's I mean in, in, I'm pretty sure because China has its its, its marks deep in um, Latin America and this in as well, mm-hmm. uh, parts of Asia as well. Right. So this is happening everywhere, right? Which mm-hmm. is why I'm stressing the terms of reference. Yeah, I mean the we have a similar. You can if you can mm-hmm. bring the French and the US in the negotiating table. Of course, you can bring China. China is new at this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like you said, there's there's less intervention politically. You yes, know, there's so less intervention. I mean, it's it's similar in a way. Um, you know, we're grappling with that now in Sudan. Um, there's a lot of Saudi and Emirati investment. I study like land grabs and, and look at the fact that they now own more land in uh, Sudan than domestic investors themselves. And and the the problem really is, uh, it's not necessarily. I mean, some people will say. The investment is not the issue, it's the terms um, that we've agreed to that allow people, yes. uh, allow the government to if seize if the if land. If you must dine with the devil, what's that going to say about um, bring a really long term, right? You know, to fuck out as much as you can from the deal. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm I'm of the, of the sort of, I'm convinced that any investment really in, in terms of land in, in Sudan is, is, is not going to be good for us, but... 
That said, there are, you know, models where maybe people could invest in cooperative farming where farmers are still in charge of their own, you know, operations, etc. That could, you know, that's what people are saying on the ground. So there's other models for, for doing this and investment law, land law, all of these kind of legal frameworks need to, the constitution needs to be set up in a way that, that it protects people, you know, rather than... And, and, and you hit the nail on the constitutional reform. Um, one of the most disastrous pieces of legislation in Nigeria, for example, and I think the version of that exists in almost every other African country. Mm -hmm. You know how land is so important to our people, right? Our people seal the land, are buried in the land, mm -hmm. build the land. Everything for us centered more about land. Uh, and that is why it's still hard for most people <laughs> back at home, back in Africa, to buy. You know, in America here, yeah, you can buy flats. And you just buy the middle flats and mm -hmm. build. Nigerian, yeah. Ghanaian wants to own the land itself. Or build yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Not, not be in the middle. Um, the most disastrous thing is the Nigerian Land Use Act. I think mm. it was enacted in 72 or 77, but it was in the 70s. Mm. And so at a certain point, all land reverts to government. Mm. Which is terrible yeah. because if you look through Nigerian history, and I'm sure many mm. countries in Africa, 80% of the issues that this country have, even down to current political, social political dynamics, is down to land, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you can structure it such that there's some form of autonomy where people own their land and they pay taxes to you, mm -hmm. you, you wouldn't need, it, it wouldn't be so easy for the government to brazenly disburse lands, you know, yeah. to, mm -hmm. to, to, to Chinese and to other investors that come in. So constitutional reforms is, you know, is, is there. Um, and those land laws, like in Sudan, we have a similar, you know, in, in the 1970s, they passed a kind of unregistered land act that would allow the government essentially to seize any land that is... That they wanted, yeah. That they wanted that is deemed unproductive, for example. So any rain-fed farms, you know, things like that. But it was verbatim based on uh, British colonial land laws that were set up, of course, to exploit, you know, our resources. Yeah, is it the same in Nigeria or is it... Quite similar. Okay. Quite similar. Mm. Uh, the British rejigged a lot of things in Nigeria mm -hmm. and uh, land ownership, the question of land ownership. I know, you know, so I mean, in, in, in those times, uh, I know this is in Ghana, I think this also happened stretching to parts of West Africa, Togo, mm -hmm. and Ghana, and all. Um, land was, you know, the British needed to control land. So what mm -hmm. they did was it took the established chiefs out of, out of position and mm -hmm. put maybe the town joke, jester, or, you know, the town drunk. Mm -hmm. You know, people that could easily bend to their will, and mm -hmm. you know, just you know, just just as an administrator, you weren't mm -hmm. exactly leader of your people. You know, and some of figments of those ex pre-existing contracts from those times, right, have have remained part and parcel of the situation now. Even mm -hmm. even in lands like in places like um, Zimbabwe and South Africa that are having serious issues about land mm -hmm. um, redistribution. Now, um, there's something that happened around that time. I think it's 2003 or 2007. Um, which seems pretty smart to me. Um, so after Zimbabwe chased that white farmers away mm -hmm. from, listen, right, which I think could have been better done, even though some people argue that, you know, first this was needed, um, a few of them were brought, brought into Nigeria by a governor mm -hmm. who established the terms of reference. Mm -hmm. What he did was, you're going to plan for us, you have the expertise, mm -hmm. We and the banks are going to use a loan, and you own a very small minority stake. So at no point in life are you going to ever, ever claim this land of yours, except you buy it outrightly. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Because, yes, you know. So and I think that's the model that 
you know, kind of mm-hmm. let these people, let the Chinese bring expertise and you own this, you know, and then even the terms of the loan and everything, you know, it's a situation where you have to default, the port has, like, you know, in, in Habdanota in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. the port defaulted, you know, back to the Chinese, wouldn't have what, in 99 years, so it should never happen. Mm. You should never have to spread the groundwork. I'm pretty sure. The, I mean, these these are the same people who know how to find gaps to steal money. <laughs> so you can't you can't do it. Yeah. You know, for this thing. even if and I hate to see this, you know, on camera. Even if you have to find a way to make money to benefit yourself from that deal, mm-hmm. right? So long as the terms of reference benefit your people, and in the long term, you don't give it, you know, yeah. you know, to someone who will come and and, and, and extract taxes and enslave your people. Right. You know, because yeah, yeah. at some point in future there will be some further recolonization. You know? Mm-hmm. I've had seen jokes about people saying in the year twenty ninety two, the new Chinese Empire, mm-hmm. and yeah. how African countries are going to be all connected in one huge empire. It is possible, I don't know, I'm not that pessimistic, but mm-hmm. I, it, I I won't be surprised. You know what the Chinese are doing now, you know, like a few years ago the people who were making money as far as traders were those who were known in China bringing goods. Now the Chinese are coming back, coming to Africa and setting up shops. So now, if you were the guy traveling, or the, the man or the woman traveling to China buying stuff to come and sell, Chinese are taking over. Yeah, you know, they and sell. they're learning your language as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think what you were saying is important that it should be set up on like on our laws mm-hmm. for people not to be able to like overtake our the outcomes, you know? yes. Like it's not even just the men. Like I think as I don't think it's possible to compete with the Chinese. Like as far as work wise, if and resources, you know, like wherever you are. You know, they're going to bring the resources because, you know, they manufacture things. You know, a lot of our countries, we don't. So it's like if you allow them to come and set up shops, we can't compete. Mm, I, I think I think there needs to be a whole lot of constitutional reforms. And all. But the thing is, for many of our, our countries, sadly, there's, there, is, there is a short-term mentality, even down to corruption, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if we revisit Tony Blair's situation or, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. just elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, we build the road and um, into the maintenance contract, mm-hmm. they'll insert, you know, pipelines to China funds. Yeah. But, you know, in, <laughs> you know, um, some leaders back on the continent prefer, you know, let's just get my kickbacks right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, someone who in the maintenance contract for life has mm-hmm. one, you know, so even when it comes to corruption, people are so short-sighted, you know. So if our people can focus on reforms mm-hmm. that bring lasting change, and if they so want lasting money to line their pockets, yeah. that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's, there's too much short-term thinking on the continent. Yeah. Too much. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, because I was going to take it in a different direction. So go ahead. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I just, because I feel like we've talked a lot about sort of these specific places and, and the politics of those places, but I wanted to go back to the earlier conversation about journalism and sort of ask you, you know, like we have a niece who's, who's you know, in Burkina Faso, she's, how old is she now? Uh, 
19. Yeah. It, go ahead. No, because she was telling me like she wants to be a journalist, right? And I was like, I was, I was talking to her. I was like, Lisa, she wants to be a journalist. And it's funny because, you know, she's not in college yet. And looking at your your background, you didn't you didn't go to school for journalism. You went for something else. Mm-hmm. You know how, as an African, what kind of advice probably you mm-hmm. have for a kid like that, mm-hmm. or you know, I mean, what your advice on that? Um, first of all, she has to know yeah. fundamentally the journalists don't get rich. <laughs> Except you're collecting brown envelopes, just something called brown envelopes in, yeah. in West Africa, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. from the government or somebody yeah. else to run stories. Uh, I think the most important thing for anyone who wants to be a journalist anywhere, mm-hmm. not just in West Africa or the continent, is two things. The most important are two things. One, be curious, be extremely curious. Yes. I mean, yeah. People say I have have no more level of curiosity. I've had to dump, you know, dump it down a bit yeah. so I don't get into trouble. Mm. Um, but secondly, I always say write, but read far more than you write. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, read far more than you write. With those, right? It's like those are the those are the first steps. You know? And then obviously at some point, we'll intern in the newsroom because even though I didn't study journalism, I had mm. to intern in the newsroom. You know, had to work with you know get on the shoulders of some of those ahead mm-hmm. of me that had some really dedicated editors. Um, I can't call the names because you don't know the here, but one of them is in New York, um, mm-hmm. the Africa Center, who's a writer, mm-hmm. guy who wrote this donation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in 2013 or 2014, he gave me, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of time to be given. He's giving me advice. You know, so mm-hmm. the thing I would say is, apart from those first two of um, reading and writing and, and um, being curious, is you know, find people to talk to, you know, uh, yeah, there's all these people with rounded view. Of course, there's going to be biased journalists. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a bias. But yeah. Someone who's as yeah. close to neutral as possible. And, you know, uh, you know, some people call them mentors. I prefer to say, you know, people I can speak with. I, I, mm-hmm. You know, because if you, when you see mentors, people then begin to follow, copy almost holistically the, oh, the, the listen to everyone. And I find that, you know, some people can be problematic, mm-hmm. but in journalism, journalism is good. Maybe yeah. moralistic or something. Terrible person, but you know, this journalism is good, right? So, you pick and learn. You know, think of it as a buffet. You know, have several people that you can learn from. You know, if you don't have, I don't think you have to study journalism to be to be a journalist. I don't think so. But you have to read wide because there's so much more that has yeah. gone past in history than you know than than the now. So yeah. you have to know where you're coming from. You know, be able to situate your stories in history. You know? Even if she wants to go on TV, mm-hmm. right? or she wants to do documentary, be yeah. documentary, photojournalist, documentary mm-hmm. journalist. You know, there's there's people that you have to talk to, there's things you have to learn about the past, mm-hmm. either for your own personal good or for the subjects you're going to touch on. Well, on average, when you, when you, let's say, I know you covered the Ebola crisis in Liberia, for example, what, how mm-hmm. much time did it take for you to sort of do the kind of research that was necessary to even start writing or um uh, that's tricky because th- that first one because I went <laughs> I went to Liberia to go buy a Cisco concert. <laughs> oh really <laughs> <laughs> that was why I went and then I got there and then there was a polar. 
So it wasn't mm. like I went, you know. I see. Okay. But um, I, I, you know, I, I, I was abreast with the situation. I knew that it was a pull up day. I just didn't think it was that much of a big deal. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I have this opportunity to go to Liberia. And it was the first thing I went to cover music. And then I got there and you know, I could cover Ebola. And um, generally to research, I like to talk to a lot of people on the ground, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this might sound discriminatory, but Africans live in, you know, like yep. locals from that place, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of your skin color, mm-hmm. you know, but are you an African? Are you a countryman? You, yeah. Yeah, because you have a stake, so I can learn, you know, and then I filter from what I've learned from. I've, I've heard from you, I feel that that's all bias, I confirm, cross-check with other people. Mm-hmm. Anymore. So regardless of whatever desk research I go, I like to talk to locals. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, in Guinea, that was my first time in Guinea three months, two months ago. Mm-hmm. What did I do? I sat there and I talked you know, to this guy who had been a writer stringer for years. You know, and then he laid it out for me. You know, mm-hmm. So I knew that. Okay, once you're interviewing this person, mm-hmm. even though he sounds like he's genuine, you know that mm-hmm. okay, okay, this person has this vibe, mm-hmm. he has been this before, you know. So mm-hmm. that's mixed with desk research, and, and that's what many foreign reporters do not have. They just do the desk research and write from wherever they do phone calls, right. you know. But when I'm there talking to a local, I notice things, right? Yeah. I see things. So it, it's, it helps me filter, it helps me combine, you know, and then I have much more around this thing. Yeah. So it could take you months to actually... It could take me months to do a piece. It could mm-hmm. take me days to do a piece. But, you know, the important thing that I talk to, I talk to many people, mm-hmm. many, as many people as possible, you know that you will not use all of this in a piece, but yeah. it's just really good to have, to have um, a rounded understanding. Mm-hmm. Have you run into issues like going to, like interviewing people or going into the, like those countries? Well, I've been detained in... Nairobi for a few hours, yeah. Djibouti for a few hours as well. Um, but the but this, this, well, at the airport, at the airport. Um, She's used to it. <laughs> um, the army, the army in most countries is is very. The army is so paranoid. Yeah, the army is so paranoid in many countries also because you're dismissive, and I look young. You know, I don't yeah. look like I'm not yeah. white, yeah. and also I look young. I don't look like I come from money. I don't look like I have influence. Yeah. So, you know, the army is quick to stop. It has happened to me in Nigeria from mm-hmm. the time. It happened to me in uh, was it? No, not Sierra Leone. In Djibouti. Yes. Someone mm-hmm. was following me around. Um, but, I mean, sometimes you wing it. Sometimes yeah. it's good to have fixers. And that's why it's good to know lookouts. Yeah. And someone who can come through for you. Um, there's been challenges. There's also language barrier. Mm-hmm. Um you know, obviously, the budget that a freelancer would operate with is not the same as staff right at, say, mm-hmm. the Washington Post or mm-hmm. New York Times. And you mostly work freelance. Right? Mostly work freelance, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's they, there's tons and tons of challenges. Like I said, there's also travel. Mm-hmm. Travel within West Africa is terrible. Yeah. To go to from Nigeria to Guinea, for example, you probably find only one direct flight. Yeah. No, there's no direct flight. No, no. You probably find one flight that will like, take you there in a week. Yeah. So how, what I had to do when I was going to Guinea, I had to go through Sierra Leone. Yeah. I stopped yeah. there. And on Sierra Leone is, you know, the roads are not good once you get all the way from, um, um, I forgot where the airport is, but what, it's just outside of Freetown. Mm. Once you go all the way there to the border of Pamela, mm-hmm. very clean roads. Mm. Immediately you cross the roads, right? <laughs> the bribes double. Rules are powers, you know, in Guinea, and then you have to drive like what, what, the capital, mm-hmm. just 
because you can if you were to take a flight you probably have to wait six or, or up to ten hours in what in either ghana or in senegal right yes it, it can be terrible so go travel there's all sorts of challenges for for journalists we don't like most importantly we don't have the budget if i had the budget i mean i would be able to do that 16 hours you know pay for what like hotel yeah. somewhere Sleep. Yeah, but you have to consider because you have to pay your fixer, you have to yeah. pay translator, mm-hmm. transcribing, which is like the hardest thing in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to pay for it. Yeah, so you have there's all this all sorts of things. Um, what about visas? Do you deal with oh, that? Actually, <laughs> <laughs> visas are visas are yeah. terrible. Visas yeah. are hard, um, and that's why. I mean, apart from wanting to restrict myself, so that you know, because mm-hmm. when you do too much, mm-hmm. right, you dilute your your impact. Mm-hmm. So apart from wanting to concentrate my reporting around Western Central Africa. Mm-hmm. Another thing is visas. Because mm-hmm. like I can't go and cover something in East Africa because apart from um Uganda and Uganda will give you some bit of stress. Apart from mm-hmm. Kenya and Rwanda, which one has Sonarifa? Mm-hmm. And look at the Nigerian visa, which is everybody finds it top mm-hmm. against the Nigerian visa because apart from we still have a visa and arrival thing, but I think last week that has been cancelled. Mm-hmm. Apart from the ECOWAS countries, mm-hmm. Cameroon, which every other country needs a visa to apply mm-hmm. to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Fellow Africans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nigeria has shares maritime boundary with Equatorial Guinea. Mm-hmm. The same Gulf of Guinea. Shares maritime boundaries. From Calabar, the city I talked about in South mm-hmm. Nigeria, from Calabar, you look well enough, you stand on the hills, you can't see Equatorial Guinea in the distance. Mm-hmm. It's about three hours by boat. Mm-hmm. I need a visa to go to Equatorial Guinea. Mm-hmm. So when yeah, when when Obiang was when President Obiang was trying to hide yeah, hide German, I could have gone to do a stakeout in the middle again, but no, I need a visa. Yeah. So it's too bad because you'll have like it, like we share maritime. A French yeah. a Portuguese person can literally just say, "Oh my God, tomorrow morning I'm going to." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Djibouti, for example, one of the reasons I was detained was oh, apart from being in journalism because it was visa arrival and I, mm-hmm. I had letters of invitation, but they're like mm-hmm. a Nigerian journalist. No. This is what you're going to cover. So it's still not till I have to, you know, call someone. Mm. It's all down to visa issues. Mm. I know people who have had, I mean, the hell that South Africa gives everyone in the continent. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're not from the SABC region, yeah, right? visa, which is mm-hmm. it's strange. Do you think that influences the the, the fact or the way? That, yeah. Oh, a lot, a lot. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you have your American passport. You can mm-hmm. go tomorrow, even anyway. I went to Singapore earlier this year, mm-hmm. right? And my friends, I had to go through uh, two Turkish airlines. I wasn't allowed into the country, even though I had the 14 hour layover. And then I had to go. And then my friends, Nigerians with American passports, they were stuck in China, mm-hmm. right? You know, cancel flight or something. And, and for two days, the Chinese put them in a hotel. That mm-hmm. would never happen in Nigeria. I'll be kept at the airport. <laughs> you know, so Americans and people with American passports and British passports you know, can easily come and report anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, and um, it's, it's strange, you know, because, um, so the Economist was hiring for a reporter in this year, you know, and then there's someone I emphasized that I can, I have my ECOWAS passport means that I can cover all 16 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's Without without needing a visa, but if the economist needs me to go to 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 London for mm. a for a summit, which I as Africa correspondent I'm going to present them, then I have to wait to what? 
one week, one month. You know, so visa, visa, it's it's part of the privilege. Yeah. So the, the, this privilege is two prongs, mm-hmm. right? One, a white tattooed guy can come up to the Nigerian army mm-hmm. or to the Nigerian army and say, "I want to interview you," and even if they refuse, they're going to refuse so meekly, <laughs> very yeah, almost timidly. Yeah. I cannot mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is you can also get into interview president has written incredibly short notice mm. interview anyone and that I can't secondly for visa I can't like I say I can't travel maybe if we're going around this thing and then there's a quartem so Nigerian militant from the Niger Delta were recruited once for a field quartem in Equatorial Guinea mm-hmm. an American guy can really just jump on the boat and go across sure. the border wave his passport or get in I cannot do that yeah but we share maritime boundary with Equatorial Guinea mm. yeah. So it's, it's, it's important. So they can cover and, and, things and, just as they emerge, kind of. And, yeah. yeah, so when you put this factor of um, foreign privilege together with the fact that foreign media has the funding. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? Yeah, voila. That's, that's, mm-hmm. why, that's why reporting is skewed into a side. The money that will pay this guy, um, this British, um, sorry, yeah, British journalist wrote something recently for Harper's about Black Axe, which is mm-hmm. this um, Nigerian college fraternity that has not spread uh, into trafficking and into um, advanced fee fraud across so many countries in Europe now. And this guy came to like, what, five cities in Nigeria, went to Amsterdam, went to Sicily, at least five, six countries, but one story. Wow. And I was telling, <laughs> I was telling people, this amount spent on one, you've not paid him. Yeah. Right? This amount spent on one story. Right, can pay a newsroom in Nigeria for like four months. Wow! Everybody in the newsroom. Sure. So, yeah. so that's why narrative is good. They have the privilege. There's a visa and travel, mm-hmm. and and of course, there's the, there's the funding that foreign media has. You know, the kind of money that Jeff Bezos has pumped into into Washington Post, for example, is mm-hmm. equivalent to maybe twice the size of the Nigerian budget. Mm-hmm. Not not the media, but the Nigerian. Like we're taking GDP, yeah, so yeah. yeah, so the narrative is always going to be speed as mm-hmm. long as you have um, the economic, um, what do you call it now, the power, yeah. But mm-hmm. as long as you don't have that on the content, that's it. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, like as I said, leaderships, right? Like which one of the president, past or present, that you. In, like on, on the continent. The continent. Oh, I like Sankara. And while I'm sad that he died early, I'm really happy that he also died early because I hate to think what if Thomas Sankara had become Paul Kagame? It would I would I don't think <laughs> I don't think many people would have taken it because that's essentially what Museveni um Mugabe, Mugabe and uh, even Gaddafi became. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's a good thing that Sankara came and died early. Um, as it's bittersweet. Um, I like Ian Kama, but but I think I mean he's now past president of Botswana. But I've begun to hear a few things about how he shackled the press, and I'm like, can't nobody get things a hundred percent right? Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, that's about it. I don't know that there's any Nigerian president that I like. I like. I'm sorry. Do you do you think we have to put like those people on the pedestal, like 
so that's that's one thing putting people on the pedestal is one of the reasons why they eventually flop because they think to themselves mm-hmm. i have such a commanding following i can't seem to do anything wrong mm-hmm. and people forget that leaders are like the rest of us mm-hmm. right everyone has a flaw mm-hmm. and your favorites your favorites can be problematic mm-hmm. right so when you start goading people and making them seem like they're infallible you know, it's if they were weak before, they become even weaker because then they begin to focus on the ego, mother performance. And Islam becomes, you know, it's 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 a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to to. There's this new governor in Nigeria, um, one of the states, or your state, mm-hmm. for example, is coming. It's good every food. Well, I'm I'm, I'm I, I can't lie. I'm impressed, mm. but I'm not going to praise him. Yeah. Once ago, because this is his first year. Mm-hmm. Oh. I'm going to wait. Let's take it straight all four years. Let's see. It is. And even at that, right, you, you have to praise and criticize an equal measure, or, or rather mm. praise and suggest an equal measure, yeah. right, so that people, you know, praising leaders, and leadership is square, like at the base of all of our problems is leadership. As Chinua Achebe once said, the trouble with Nigeria is mm. simply and squarely a problem. Leadership, mm. right? Now, so if you manage to have, if you have a leader who is fairly decent, and then you start praising him, these people will get sidetracked. It happens time and time over again mm. people get sidetracked and then mm. focus on uh, how do you say the major in the minors and minor in the majors that mm. begins to happen after a while yeah a lot of people have been praising the, the president of, um, or prime minister of Ethiopia but he's, he's, he's done well he's, he I has but there's well. also there are also problems there are lots of problems there are lots of online problems he's yeah. very well did very well in getting Ethiopia and Eritrea Back on sure. track, mm-hmm. but even that lions, the cracks are beginning to appear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because as a people, and this is a reference straight out of chemistry. As a people, we're naturally disposed to entropy, you know, to mm-hmm. disorderliness. Yeah. You know, so for you to undo that takes leadership. For you to sustain that takes another form of leadership. Now, if someone who has undone something, undone this and people are not tending towards towards um, order. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to praise that person, oh, you've done so well. You know? And the guy yeah. forgets about sustaining. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's human psychology. Which is why, the reason why I ask you this is, you know, like the, 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 the Ethiopian prime minister, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I feel like sometimes we should, cause I struggle with this with Kagame as well. Even though I don't, like, I don't, Kagame, I, I just don't respect his person. Because I, I feel like, you know, if you want to make your country great, you shouldn't destroy another country just to make your country great. I feel like our leaders, as anybody, would have flaws. flaws. And you, I, I feel like we shouldn't hide those flaws, Why right? We should talk about it, even though we give them their respect. You know, like someone like Sankara, you don't hear anybody say like, you don't hear many people say anything bad about Sankara. Like, he did some bad things. But we just don't talk about it. I will be happy to report about this next year. Yo, <laughs> I love him, and I don't think anything can change it. I, because yeah, I love him. I think he's, I think he's, he's good. And, and this is the thing that leaders don't get right. Mm-hmm. Your good has to far outweigh your bad. Yes. Right? He's, and I think that's, that's... I would like love to report about this part. Yeah, he's definitely... That, like, that, that is essentially what constitutes nuance. Yeah, mm-hmm. and because, like, he himself admits... He admitted the mistakes that he oh, did, yeah. right? But it's just, he did that in such a way through 
you know, speeches and through interviews, but people didn't criticize it like like on the like on the international level because it was things specific to Burkina, you know, mm-hmm. like probably many people didn't know or whatever it was. It's not like other people, you know, like you know, we could the compare he did a lot of bad things, but when he wasn't uh, on, like on power, it was a bit calm. I don't, it's someone that I don't like because of what he did and the deeds that he, he you know, made. he made. But also, I think we have to, each one, we have to like give them their flowers and also we show do, the bad do. side. Um, there's Olusheko Mbatsandu in Nigeria mm-hmm. who was, um, like I said, he wanted to extend his tenure to mm-hmm. 2007 and become president for life. He also, in 2006, 2007, also presided over what's probably the worst um, election in Nigerian history and mm-hmm. installed the brother of his former deputy when he was a military guy, um, Maria Ardua, who eventually died mm-hmm. in the presidency and, you know, um, let that's how good luck Jonathan became the accidental president. Um, your handed governors out of office, you know, so which is why I was telling you that, you know, mm-hmm. justice in Nigeria still middle selective. Mm. Wasandro you set up the EFCC and you know, governors he didn't like, you know. Mm. How good luck Jonathan himself became governor mm-hmm. accidentally again was because the governor of the state was in the bad books of of um of Obasanjo. And oh. so <laughs> Obasanjo made sure he was impeached and good luck mm. became the governor. Um two of the greatest massacres in Nigerian history, mm-hmm. right, which is part of my book, mm-hmm. rehashing them as they yeah. happen. Um in OD in 1999, mm-hmm. where Obasanjo sent um, soldiers to clear out mm-hmm. a whole community. Wow. You know, youths killed about six policemen in Obasanjo to clear out the whole community. Afterwards, when they insulted, insulted injury, when they said, ah, you know, your, your youths killed this, you know, this will serve as a lesson so that you guys, as a deterrent. Mm-hmm. In, right in the face of people who were mourning, right? Mm-hmm. He took out at least six or seven governors through sham impeachments. You have four or six legislators impeaching a governor out of that doesn't even form a quorum in a city. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a But Obasanjo also leads the 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 you know program for what Nigeria is. Most of the infrastructure projects constructed in the last twenty years, right? Mm-hmm. Even down to the ones commissioned a few years, two, three years ago, how Obasanjo's project he initiated them. Mm-hmm. The Paris Claude Debt Relief of two thousand and five. Um and, and the person who he used was, um, who, who was his advisor was um, Amina Mohammed, who's not a Secretary General, mm-hmm. right? Paris told us several billions of Nigerian debt. It was a person that made that happen, mm-hmm. right? The Nigerian economy you know, was stabilized because we're really just coming from Abacha. Mm-hmm. You had Abdul Salam Abubakar who was in there for just what? Um, it's less than a year, eight months. I just stabilized and to hand over to Abbasan. So imagine after all those years of military rule, somebody comes and stabilizes the country. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was all about Sanjo. He was a terrible, terrible leader. Mm-hmm. He's the same one who goes around Africa today as a peace envoy. Yeah. You, know, being, mm-hmm. you know, so, but, you know, you have to report these nuances and then you have to make sure that when they're doing this, you know, you criticize them, right? Yeah. They may be doing well, but you suggest, you know, you don't overly praise people. Mm-hmm. Commend is what I would say. Mm-hmm. You commend them. And then suggested that they can get better. There's so many instances of a battle and you're doing wrong. Well. 
Uganda gave Nelson Mandela a passport in, in, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Oliver Tambo, or one of them, also stayed in Nigeria. I think Mbeki. Mbeki lives mm-hmm. in the University of Lagos. It's crazy. You know what's funny? Talking about that place, I remember I went back home, right? Burkina Faso. And as I was leaving, they gave me more trouble about my documents because back then, I, you know, I didn't have a passport. I, I had a, a letter. They gave me trouble for the letter. Then America gave me trouble. You know, like, I've even it's, seen people with their visa that they would tell, no, no, your visa is fake. And, 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 mm-hmm. and um, I mean, to an extent, this is, of course, the colonial legacy, mm-hmm. right? The redrawing of the borders, which is what happened in Cameroon, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Parts of Cameroon, the Anglophone region was part of Nigeria, mm-hmm. right? So I talked to, you know, so, so part of this is, is, is colonial legacies and the imposition of borders. But the thing is that our people have now refused, you know, to open up the borders the way, you know, the people who came to, to do this in the country yeah. have opened their borders. Yeah. But we exactly. are still keeping the yeah. borders. So it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's oh. crazy, but it all contributes to why yeah. there's not like a lot of life being shown in these different parts of the continent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're grateful for what you do, and yeah. I'm looking forward Thank to reading you. your book. Okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm praying I get the publisher first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you will because it's going to be interesting. Thank you so much for coming, and you know, we really no appreciate you. Yeah, I had a good time. Yeah.